All right, welcome to lesson number 21 of Master Plan for Life on page 203, 203 in your notebooks. Welcome to those who are in the room and those who are joining us by live stream. And I know we have folks join us by live stream, even though I don't have any ability to know exactly who it is, but I've had a few people comment to me that they've been watching, so welcome to you guys. And this is, as I say, lesson number 21. We've had two weeks off because last week we didn't meet due to spring break. So I'll remind you as to where this lesson fits into the overall curriculum. We've completed part one of two. Part one answered one question, who am I? And then part two, starting with lesson 17, is answering the question, why am I here? And to answer the question, why am I here, you see in the upper right-hand corner, it says objectives of the church. The prior section, starting in lesson 17, was the purpose of the church. But every lesson we have, all the way to the end now, to lesson 28, is all going to be about the church. And the reason it's all about the church is because in order to answer the question, why am I here, it is related to the issue of the church. And so we are looking at the purpose of the church, top of the right-hand corner, the objectives of the church, and then also the goals of the church. It's page 203. 203, Gage, you got it. 203. And uh, in looking at the objectives of the church, there are three, three objectives in this order, evangelism, edification, and evangelism. Uh, evangelism, edification, and I said evangelism twice, I think. Evangelism, edification, and expansion are the three objectives. And then under each of those, evangelism, edification, and expansion, there are ways that those are accomplished, that those objectives are met. And we are now looking at the first of those three objectives, evangelism, and looking at the two ways, biblically, that evangelism is accomplished. Two weeks ago, the last time we were together, we saw personal witness, just individual evangelism, you talking to other people, me talking to other people about the Lord. And we saw how that goes and what the message is of our evangelism as we talk to other people, co-workers, acquaintances, friends, family members. That's one of the ways, main ways that the objective of evangelism is accomplished. But tonight we're going to look at a second one of those. And then after we're done tonight, we'll move to the next objective of the church. We'll move from evangelism to edification. And under edification, we'll look at three ways that that's done. And then when we're done with those three, we'll go to the last one, which is expansion, and there are two ways that that's done, okay? So you guys good with, with what we're doing? Three objectives, evangelism, edification, expansion, and then there are lessons devoted to each of the ways those objectives are accomplished. Right now, we're looking at the second of the two ways that the objective of evangelism is accomplished. accomplished. Top of page 203. The Great Commission described the objective of evangelism as disciple-making. Evangelism can be seen from two perspectives, personal witness and corporate mission. Personal witness is what we saw in the Lesson 20 uh, two weeks ago. Now Lesson 21, we're going to see corporate mission. Now these should not be thought of as separate concepts. Personal witness is one activity of the church that's required in order to accomplish corporate mission. Corporate mission is evangelism pursued through the united effort of the members of a local assembly using their collective resources. All right, so you guys see the difference? We call it corporate mission, and when you use the word corporate, that can sound business-like. That's not, that's not how we're using it. 
You could use, substitute the word congregational. It's congregational mission. It's church mission. It's us together pooling our abilities and our resources in order to advance the Lord's work. Uh, and personal witness is just you doing evangelism, you doing evangelism, me doing evangelism. But this lesson is about us collectively, corporately, congregationally carrying out the Lord's mission. And we're going to see that the Bible teaches that that's supposed to happen in order for the Lord's mission in His world to move forward. So in this lesson, we're, and, if, and if you have any questions as I go, of course, don't hesitate to stop me. I'll do my best to answer. In this lesson, we're going to examine the goal of corporate mission, the scope, and the, the priorities. So first of all, the goal of corporate mission. The corporate mission of the church in evangelism includes the work of personal witness, what we talked about two weeks ago, but it integrates that into a larger goal or the big picture. The corporate mission of the church is to reproduce congregations. So together, that's what we want to see happen. We want to see people come to the Lord by our efforts at witnessing individually, personal witness, by having people come to church and hear the gospel and respond to it. So a number of ways that people come to the Lord, but we want to see people come to the Lord, but then that's not the end of our work. We want to see the Lord's mission move forward in His world. And one of the major ways that happens is with the middle of page 203. The corporate mission of the church is to reproduce congregations. Personal witness, you see there, seeks to multiply converts, people that are converted to Christianity, converted to Christ. But corporate mission seeks to organize those converts into new local churches and so multiply congregations. The body of your New Testament from the book of Acts through the, the book of Jude, the second to the last book in your New Testament, the book of Jude, so from Acts, the fifth book, to Jude, the 26th book, from, from Acts to Jude, it deals exclusively with the establishment and the edification of local churches. Have you ever thought about that? That how important, how central the church is to what God's doing in the New Testament? That here you've got all of those books, the bulk by far, all except five books of the New Testament are devoted to the establishment and the edification of local churches. So that idea that each church, like ours, should be devoted to trying to reproduce ourselves with creating, establishing new churches is something that's embedded in the New Testament. But it's foreign to a lot of us because too few of our churches actually attempt to make that happen. In our church's 20-year uh, plan, uh, uh, excuse me, 15-year plan initially, and now we're in a, our second plan, which is a 10-year plan, but in those plans, one of the things that we have always kept out in front of our congregation is the desire and the need for our church to reproduce itself in planting other churches, reproducing other churches. And the truth of the matter is, our church has existed now for 20 years, and we would have already done that at least once, and perhaps twice, been able to birth a church or two. The only thing that's kept us from doing that is having a church planter the person to actually lead the plant, pastor as the church planter, the new church. And that's been a disappointment. Uh, you know, it's okay. It's what the Lord has. We'll, we'll do it instead of then. We'll do it 
coming up in the next few years. But finding the right person to do that has, has been difficult, and keeping the right person to do that has been difficult. We've had guys uh, come to our church, a number of them over the years, come here for training in order to plant a church. And we thought some of those guys would be our church planters. And then for different reasons, it didn't work out with some of those guys. Uh, one of our guys, some of you know, uh, Matt Owen, and Nadine knows Matt Owen for sure. Uh, Matt was gone by the time you guys came into our church. But he and his wife, uh, Erica, who were actually in town just a couple of weeks ago and here at our service, and they're coming back in June because uh, they're going to take some vacation, so they'll be here. But Matt and Erica were here for seven years, and Matt was on staff here as an associate pastor, and we thought Matt might plant a church through our church. And then a church in Jacksonville, Florida, stole them away. <laughs> and he's pastoring the church down there. And the church is doing uh, famously. It's really doing, doing well. And we're thankful for that. And in one sense, then, uh, we were talking about this at our leader, last leadership team, actually. And one of our deacons said, you know, I think we should count, I think we should count what Matt is doing as a win <laughs> for us. Because, indeed, they did get their training here. And they are doing some of what we do here down there. And so it is an extension in one sense of our church down in Jacksonville, and we're very thankful for that. As a matter of fact, they adopted our name uh, down there. We want royalties from that. But their, their name is Community Bible Church down in Jackson. When he went there, it was Orange Park Bible Church because I said it's in Jacksonville, but it's actually in Orange Park just outside of Jacksonville. So anyway, we've got a young man who's in our pastors and training program right now and who would love to plant a church, and we'll see how the Lord leads with that. But just understand that the Bible teaches that God's mission moves forward by churches multiplying. And in order for churches to multiply, existing churches have to be about seeing that happen. And in order to see that happen, you've got to have people who can lead those church plants like this one is. This church was a plant out of another church. And that church, where I was on staff, sent my family and three other families 20 years ago to start this church. So we want to do the same thing. And you see that same kind of thing happening throughout the New Testament. Now, where do you see it? Middle of page 203, the goal of reproducing churches can be seen in the first and the second missionary journeys of, of Paul. Now, as we go through on Sunday mornings in our worship hour, our 9.30 hour, the book of Acts, when Paul comes on the scene, the Apostle Paul, by the time we get to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 9, actually, he comes to the Lord, but then he takes center stage in Acts chapter 13. And it's in Acts chapter 13 and following that he begins to go on these mission trips, missionary journeys. And he goes out, and he goes with some associates, and he goes to other, a number of places and preaches the gospel and sees people come to the Lord, forms churches, and then those churches plant other churches. That's where you see this pattern happening of churches planting churches. So we're going to see it in the coming weeks and months in our series in the book of Acts. So you can see it in the first and the second times that Paul went out to do this. Here's the first one. During the first missionary journey that's recorded for us in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul and his associate Barnabas followed a clear plan. After being commissioned by their home church in Antioch of Syria, 
they established a new church in Antioch of Pisidia. Let me just stop there. Okay. It gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? So you've got these two towns, both named Antioch. But they're not the same Antioch. There's Antioch of Syria, there's Antioch of Pisidia. So Paul and Barnabas are in the church in Antioch of Syria. That church commissions them, sends them out then to go and spread the gospel. They go to another town called Antioch, and they do that. And they in turn from there reached out to neighboring cities to establish other churches. So do you see it? the picture there at the bottom of page 203? got the church of Antioch, and then the arrow goes to the right. They go from there to the uh, Antioch of Pisidia. And then out of that church, three other churches are planted. In Iconium, in Lyst- the cities of Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. So that's their first missionary journey. Those two chapters in the book of Acts record that. Then, you know, it wouldn't be a pattern if you only had them do it one time, Right? But now, you look at the top of page 204, same thing happens on the second missionary journey. Followed the exact same pattern, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 16 through 18. Again, their home church is Antioch of Syria, but this time they go to the city of Ephesus, and a church is established there. And then, out of the church at Ephesus, you have churches planted in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. So the same, same kind of pattern. Now you see those names, church at Ephesus, church at Colossae. You have letters in your New Testament called Ephesians and Colossians. And the reason you do is because of this very thing, is because Paul wrote letters back to those churches after he had established them, giving them instruction on life in their church, addressing issues, encouraging them in their faith, and you have those two books in your New Testament as a result of that, Ephesians and Colossians. So it should be noted on this occasion, the second missionary journey, Paul established the mother church, so to speak, in the city of Ephesus. And and, and Ephesus commissioned a trained disciple, uh, Epaphras, his name is found in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7, to establish the churches in other communities. Now, in each of these examples, Paul himself or a trained fellow worker like Epaphras communicated the gospel, organized congregations, taught them doctrine, helped them appoint pastors, and then checked back on their progress. And the end result was always an autonomous local church. Now, that's a mouthful, but an important paragraph. Notice all the components. A church planter goes... And the church planter does these things, communicates the gospel so that people come to Christ, and then organizes those people who come to Christ into congregations, a church. Notice what they're not doing. They're not just going around giving the gospel. The way I said that sounds bad, as if that's not important. It is. But their work was not simply to give the gospel and, and see people come to Christ. It starts there, but it doesn't end there because those people then have to be brought together with other people where they can grow and be, and be taught into a church. And if there is no existing church at that location, which in the early days of Christianity, there weren't, and so they're establishing new churches, organizing congregations. 
So they communicate the gospel, start a church, organize congregations with these new converts, teach them doctrine. And the truth is they, they don't know anything, right? They're brand new in the faith. So now they have to be taught. They have to be established in their, in their Christian faith. So they're taught doctrine. And then if the church planter is not going to stay, which in the case of the Apostle Paul was the case, he was now going to move to another city and do the same thing. So that meant he had to have leaders that he could appoint as pastors, and then he would do, he would do that as well. And in fact, sometimes he would write back to those pastors. In your New Testament, you know, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are written to a protege of Paul's who, when Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy, guess what Timothy's position is? He's the pastor in Ephesus. So he appoints pastors and then checks back on their progress. You know, would write a letter to them uh, asking how they're doing, write a letter to them to address issues that he had heard from them that they were having some difficulty with. And some of those letters that he wrote to them, checking back on their progress and helping them, are actually books in your New Testament. You, most of the books in your New Testament are written to churches or pastors of churches, and they are written in order to address issues that are happening within those churches, to encourage them, to correct them, whatever the need was. But then notice that last sentence, the end result was always an autonomous local church. That word autonomous is not something we use often. So what does it mean? Uh, autonomous means self-governing, self-governing local church. So they established these churches in these towns, and those churches governed themselves. They didn't have, they didn't have a hierarchy outside of the church that governed it, which is what many denominations have. You know, you've got denominations with a church, but then above the church... You, you know, you might have some kind of a council, a synod. You know, our Lutheran friends have that. They have synods, S-Y-N-O-D. That's outside of the church, above the church, and is part of the governing of the church. Or our Presbyterian friends have what are, are called sessions outside of the, the church that help with the governing of the, of the church. You know, Roman Catholic has a hierarchy, so there are these hierarchies. They're called by different names. But it's our understanding that that's not the way it went. You know, yes, Paul was an authority outside of the church, but he was an apostle, and you don't have any more apostles, okay? And you didn't have these bodies, sessions, synods, or anything else. The churches were self-governing. And so our church, having been planted by another church 20 years ago, once we got on our feet, <clears throat> 14 months after we had our first service, we held a special service to charter our church as an independent, autonomous church. Uh, and that was a very special day, October 27, 2002. So it was obviously special. I still remember it. And uh, we had the parent church from which I came. It was represented there, and folks came, and it was a joyous occasion. And we had the people that God had brought to us by that time, 14 months in, who wanted to be members of this now new, newly established church, and they signed a charter document. I have it in my office. And it was, the, it was the greatest thing, right? But from that point on, October 27 of 2002, we were now an autonomous, self-governing church. And the church that sent us out to start this church now no longer 
had authority over our church. So now we're, instead of mother-daughter churches, we're now sister churches, is what we are. And that's the pattern you see in the, in the New Testament. So point A with regard to the goal of corporate mission is the corporate mission of the church is to reproduce congregations. And it's to do that, point B, middle of page 204, is to reproduce those churches in kind. That is, you want to try to reproduce churches that are like your church, both doctrinally and philosophically. Those are the two points you have on page 204. Churches should reproduce doctrinally. Even a casual reading of Paul's epistles, that is, the letters that Paul wrote to these churches and two pastors of churches, demonstrates he was consumed with a desire to see sound doctrine established in the churches. I mean, is that, if you've just had a cursory reading of the New Testament and what Paul wrote in the New Testament, isn't that a true statement? I mean, he's like really concerned <laughs> that churches have their doctrinal act together. And if they're deviating from the truth that he taught to them while he was with them, now he's writing to correct that or to encourage them to stay with what he taught them. Furthermore, it cannot be said that he was selective in his concern for doctrine, as if only a few teachings, doctrines, merited careful attention. In fact, to the church at Ephesus, he said, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So he was serious about teaching them about who God is, God's plan for His world, how Christ fits into that, and Christ having come to earth and to accomplish the work of redemption on the cross and then with His perfect life and then His resurrection, what we call the gospel. Of course, He taught all of that doctrine, that teaching. But then He also taught about Christian living now. Now that you've been converted and you're a Christian and you belong to Christ and He's your Lord, then you ought to live accordingly. And a lot of what Paul has to say is wrapped up in that. But he doesn't leave it at that. He goes on to talk a lot about the fact that, hey, you're only going to be here for a temporary period of time. And so don't live like this is your permanent home. It's not. Your, your home and your eternal home is in, is in heaven. And so remember that and, and then live with a loose grip on the things of this world. You find that kind of teaching a lot too. And then in the midst of your suffering and your difficulty and even persecution, Paul is reminding you that, hey, this is going to end. You know, your suffering is going to end and there's going to be a, a time of no suffering for eternity in order to encourage people. So when we say he was not selective in his concern for doctrine, that's what I mean. You see that broad sweep of things that he's, he's teaching about. And then churches should not only seek to re reproduce doctrinally that, so that these churches teach the same kind of truth that you, you have taught them that has come from God's Word, but also philosophically. Not only was Paul concerned about reproducing a doctrinal system in the churches, he was also determined to see that those churches mirrored his application of doctrine. He wanted to see that truth put into practice in the way that he had modeled before them. So he writes to Timothy, for example, bottom of page 204. Remember, Timothy is the pastor at the church of Ephesus at this point. And he says to Timothy, although I hope Timothy, to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the, of the truth. All right, so here's, here's an example of something that Paul would be very concerned about 
uh, if he were alive and if he were in this room that he wrote to Timothy about. And here, when he says, I'm writing you these instructions, here's one of the instructions he wrote to Timothy about at that very time. That's in chapter 3. You see that, 1 Timothy chapter 3? 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you were to go and read 1 Timothy chapter 2, you would find one of the things he wrote about was the roles of men and women in the church. The roles of men and women in the church. And he makes clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll mention here in a moment, and in chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, that the leadership of the church is to be male. That's what he says. Well, you know, see, that's 2,000 years ago he writes that. Here we are, 2022. And how popular is that? It's not popular with everybody, is it? And, and if Paul were here, what would he say about that? He would say, none of that's changed. Matter of fact, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, in, in establishing the truth that men were made by God to lead lovingly, lead lovingly in the home and to lead lovingly in God's church, in establishing that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul goes all the way back to creation. He says, for Adam was created first. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 2. And he's actually saying that was on purpose, people, <laughs> that God created the man first and then created the woman, as it says in the book of Genesis, to be a helper to him. So God established this in creation, Paul is saying, and it's supposed to continue, and it's supposed to show up in our homes, and it's supposed to show up in our churches. All right, so that's one of the things philosophically, one of the applications, practices that we need to have in our, our churches. But as I say, with times, when times change, many people, many churches, many Christians, many leaders want to maintain popularity with the culture, and so they go with the culture rather than what God is saying. And yet God is very clear about this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, then you come into chapter 3, and he gives the qualifications for pastors and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3 starts this way. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, that's the same word for pastor. If anyone desires to be a pastor, then he goes on to say, here are the qualifications for that. And the, the very first qualification is that this person be the husband of but one wife. Now, that's tough for the ladies to pull off, okay? <laughs> okay? And so he's assuming that this person who's going to be a pastor is going to be a man, the husband of but one wife. Uh, goes on to talk about the qualifications for the deacons in the church. But then in verse 11, chapter 3 and verse 11 says... It talks about the deacons' wives. Notice. So he distinguishes between the deacons and the deacons' wives. So the, the pastors are supposed to be men, the deacons are going to be men, and then the deacons, like the pastors, have wives. So that's an example of application. Uh, not just doctrine, uh, as important as that is, of course, about who God is and what God's character is like and who Christ is and what He has done, but there's also practical, applicational life in the church. And if we reproduce churches, we want to reproduce churches that get both of those right. All right, top of page 205. 
That's the goal of corporate mission. It's to reproduce churches, and it's to reproduce churches that are like your church, like the church of the New Testament, in both doctrine and in practice, application. But now the scope of corporate mission. How far does it extend? Where does it go? That's what this point is about. The corporate mission of the church should have an expanding vision. Christ's last recorded message before He ascended back to the Father after Jesus completed His work on earth was this from Acts chapter 1. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now on Sunday mornings we're going through the book of Acts and I've had that verse on the screen a bunch of times because it's right at the beginning of the book of Acts and it sets the outline for the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. That verse right there. Because the outline for those 28 chapters goes geographically from Jerusalem, where it starts, and then by the time you get to chapter 8, which we've finally gotten to, it moves out to Samaria and Judea, and then later through those missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas, it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. And it's to continue to the very end of the age, Jesus said in Matthew 28. So we're to continue that process of seeing the gospel start in, in effect, our Jerusalem. What's our Jerusalem? Trenton. But then move from Trenton outward. Move to regions outside of our city. And then move to other places in God's world through foreign missions. That's what this point is about then. The concept of expanding vision means, A, that corporate mission takes place within the community, Jerusalem or Trenton. When most people hear the word missions, they think of ministry that takes place in a distant, remote, or an uncivilized nation. You know, some place in Africa where nobody's ever been with the, the gospel. You know, that is it, but that's not all or even first what missions means. Corporate mission of the church is the reproduction of congregations and should be pursued in every community that's large enough to sustain multiple congregations. And we see that in the New Testament. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from, now notice, the house to house. And in all likelihood, that house to house is house church to house church. I have been, I've taught you in the city of Ephesus, but within the city of Ephesus, you've got multiple house churches that have been planted, is the idea. Ephesus was a metropolis. It was a large commercial city. And in Colossians chapter 4, at the end of that letter, that's the last chapter, chapter 4, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church, notice, in her house. So you've got churches being reproduced within a city. And the New Testament pattern provides numerous benefits for the ministry of the local church. Because when you do that, when you plant churches, you break off people from your church to daughter, birth, a new, a new church. Here's a couple of the benefits. One, it maximizes edification. Edification is, the word means to build up edify. An edifice is a building. 
And so edification means to build up. And when you do this, it maximizes the building up of the people of the church. Now, how so? Here's how. The early church multiplied in numerous small house churches due to the lack of facilities in which to carry out their ministries of edification. You know, that's one way we need to translate our thinking today into 2,000 years ago. There is no example in the New Testament of anybody having a building like this one for a church. Now, it doesn't mean having a building like this one for a church is a bad thing, if, obviously. We, if we don't think so or we wouldn't have one. But they didn't have the opportunity to do that. So churches met in people's homes for the most part. Uh, and they multiplied in small house churches due to not having facilities like this. Today, larger facilities are available. That does not mean that larger is always better. As a church grows, it may reach a point where it can produce spectators instead of disciples. You think that's true? That it can become so large that now people come for the show. They come and they're anonymous. Slip in. You can slip out. You can... You've been to church, You've, you, you may have been helped by having been there, heard the message, participated in the music, the, you know, the worship, whatever. So I'm not saying that you're not helped, but that, that's not what the Bible describes as life in the Father's house, life in the local church. But lots of churches have done that and they've sort of warehoused people into these places so that now you're actually getting these spectators who come to watch the professionals do the thing. Now, we're going to be talking about um, worship in two weeks, what the Bible says about worship. But just right now, let me beat on the worship thing a little bit, the way it goes in churches today. A lot of times when you go to these big churches that do the warehousing thing and they think that's the best way to do it, uh, they minimize the worship of the people in the congregation and they maximize the leading of the people on the stage. And one of the ways they do that is by turning the lights off in the congregation and putting spotlights on the people on the stage. Now, what does that communicate? The action's here. The action's up there, not out here. And the truth is, biblically, you don't have, you're not there to be entertained as a spectator by people who are professionals to do that. And you're not to be placed in the dark as if what we're doing out here is somehow insignificant. One of the reasons I'm so big on lots of lighting, and I like to be lighted in the, in the auditorium, is because everybody needs to be able to see everybody. Because we do this together. It's not the people, and we don't even call it a stage. And if somebody calls it a stage, they get smacked. It's a platform, and it's only there, and it literally, we only made it 18 inches on purpose. We didn't want it to be any higher than it had to be for people to be able to see. In my view, the higher you make it, the more it looks like that's the spotlight. And I don't want me to be the spotlight. I don't want the musicians to be the spotlight. I want God's people congregationally to be the spotlight. It's one of the reasons that so many times, almost every week, we have at least one song where there's no music, one section of a song, a cappella, and it's just the voices. 
And we do that on purpose because we're trying to emphasize it's us doing this together. It's not them. It's not just a few of us. It's all of us. And so the instruments drop out, and now you just encourage everybody to sing out to the Lord together. But that's not what these kinds of settings, the warehouse, big box churches do, and it can produce spectators rather than disciples. And at that point, a new congregation ought to be established to promote active service amongst all members and thus edification, build up, build those people up, build other people up. Otherwise, you're just bringing people in. They're not being built up. They're not being discipled. They're just spectating. Now, what is that number? At some point, you come to a number where it's being counterproductive, that you have people who are just coming and leaving. And the Bible doesn't give you that number. I, so I, I can't, I would not try to pontificate about a particular number. Uh, practically speaking, for me, uh, it's, around, it's around 500 people, practically speaking. And somebody could say, no, it's 400 or no, it's 600. Okay, I'm not going to argue. But the point is that keep an eye on that. You as leadership have to keep an eye on that. Are you getting to a point where you are now large enough that you don't have people actively serving in the church? They're just coming and then leaving. And when you get to the point that you don't have people actively serving, you most definitely need to split off and start, and start another church. So it maximizes edification and it conserves resources. Congregations have limited resources that should be channeled into the pursuit of the objectives of the Great Commission, evangelism, edification, expansion. Church facilities that are built larger and larger can eventually lose their cost effectiveness. You know, so rather than just keep building and building and building, then let's start another church in a spot that can reach other people in other portions of the city that, that we're not reaching. Corporate mission takes place within Trenton, within Jerusalem, within your city, wherever that is, but B, bottom of page 205, beyond that, beyond your city. The church that was established in Jerusalem was intended to minister beyond its own community. Its goal was a worldwide multiplication of churches. The Apostle Paul demonstrated that biblical ministry is never content with the status quo. It's never content with just where it is. It wants to continue to move forward. Have you guys heard me saying this in the book of Acts? I mean, I've just kind of been beating that. The church makes progress. The church moves forward. The church will move forward. Come hell or high water, no matter what the devil does, no matter what is thrown at us, the church keeps moving forward. Okay? We're not content with the status quo. And whenever he, Paul, established a church and he strengthened it to the point where it could be weaned from his oversight, he then set his sights on new horizons of ministry. You see that, top of page 206, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So we're hoping that your growth will continue to expand so that now we can move beyond, in this case, the city of Corinth, and move to the regions beyond you. So for us, as God's church here, we should think that way as well. We should think about 
establishing this church as strongly as we can, as firmly as it can be established. But then break off and start another church. Lord willing, break off and start another church. And not only that, but support and, God willing, send young people out of our church. What a great thing this would be. Young people out of our church, not to just plant churches around here, but young people who would say, I want to go to Zambia and spread the Lord's work there. Now, those of us who are parents, we got to think, we got to think before we say amen to that. Because that means your child going to Zambia. <laughs> okay, that means maybe your grandchildren being over in Zambia, too. That's quite a sacrifice, isn't it? But that's what that's what our missionaries do. And what a blessed thing it would be to have young people from our church say, I want to commit to do that. All right, so you've got the goal of corporate mission, the scope of corporate mission. It goes from your city to around your city to the regions around the world. And then lastly, the priority of corporate mission. Corporate mission is a priority for the congregation. The Great Commission was given to the church. This is seen from the fact that Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 links the Great Commission to Pentecost, which is the birth of the church. Now, if, if somebody were to ask you to explain that line, read it again. The Great Commission was given to the church. This is seen from the fact that Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 links the Great Commission to Pentecost, the birth of the church. Those two sentences are a mouthful. And, you know, I'm not giving you a quiz here, but just as you read those, you want to say to yourself, boy, is that, do I understand that? <laughs> Could I actually show that to somebody if they asked me? So let me just take a minute, actually more than a minute, to remind you about that. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is referenced there. And we quoted Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 back on page 205. Look back at page 205. Remember what 1-8 is. That's Jesus talking and saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is. That's the Great Commission. It's going to start in Jerusalem and then it's going to spread out and it's going to go around the world. And it's going to continue until Jesus comes back. But Jesus says there, it's going to start when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So when did the Holy Spirit come on them? That was the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And as we've gone through our series on Acts, we've already seen that, Acts chapter 2. And there they are. They, Jesus' followers, are in an upper room waiting, as Jesus told them to, wait until you receive this power from the Holy Spirit. And there they are in Acts chapter 2, they're waiting. And then it says, and suddenly a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind came and filled the room where they were sitting. You guys remember that? And it goes on to tell us this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it comes in this spectacular way with this loud sound. And not only with this loud sound, but then with the apostles able to speak in languages that they had never learned. Miraculously, they're speaking in other tongues. And you guys, some of you remember the story. And then the people who are there go, what is up with that? And some said, these guys are drunk because they're babbling, 
They don't understand the language that they're speaking in. But other people do understand. There are some people who understand some of the languages. Some understand other of the languages. There's a multiplicity of languages now being spoken to a multiplicity of people who are there in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up to explain what's happening here. This is the Holy Spirit come, and this is the beginning of the mission that Christ has given to us to carry out. And on that day, Acts chapter 2, now the Holy Spirit comes, and the Great Commission then, as Jesus said, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to be my witnesses. That now happened at Pentecost. Okay, so the Great Commission started at Pentecost. But that doesn't prove that the church started at Pentecost, does it? The Great Commission started at Pentecost. That's easy to prove. I just did. But now, what about the church starting at Pentecost? And let me just take a few minutes to remind you of that. That not only did the Great Commission start on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but the church itself started at exactly the same time. Here's how we know that. You might want to jot this down, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And here's what that verse says. It says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Now, that body, the body of Christ is the church. And Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 12, 13, says, we were all baptized into the church by the spirit, spirit baptism. So the, the church is formed by spirit baptism. So if we want to know when the church started, we would want to try to find out when did spirit baptism first happen? When was the first time spirit baptism ever happened in the Bible? And guess when it happened? On the day of Pentecost. How do I know this? Because Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Acts 1, 5, Jesus said, John baptized, John the Baptist, baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Spirit in just a few days. That's what he said. And then he tells them, hang out in Jerusalem and wait. And then Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and they are baptized with the Spirit. And what is baptism with the Spirit form? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the church, the body of Christ. So what you've got on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of two things at exactly the same time, the Great Commission and the church. And what's beautiful about it is they not only started in exactly the same place at the same time, uh, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, they move forward together. They advance together. And that's what these next two points are about that. So once you establish that the Great Commission was given to the church, and this is seen from the fact that Acts 1.8 links the Great Commission to Pentecost, which is the birth of the church. Once you establish that, like we just did, now you can see these next two points. The corporate, that corporate mission is not an option for the local church. They started, the Great Commission and the church started at the same time, and they go forward together in the book of Acts. Make disciples... It, which is the Great Commission, is a command to be obeyed. And the church is obligated to be faithful to that. Reproduction of churches is the biblical example for obedience to this command. 
Therefore, and this is a great line, there should never be a missionless church or a churchless mission. A missionless church or a churchless mission. That is, there should never be a church that doesn't understand what I've been talking about here, that our mission is to reproduce churches, starting in our own city, but then moving beyond. There should, our churches should always understand that mission. There should never be a missionless church. Nor should there ever be a churchless mission, meaning there should never be any kind of mission that doesn't involve the church. Did you guys know that there are all kinds of missions activities that don't have anything to do with the church? I mean, think about this. Sometimes people go on missions trips. If you think about some of the missions trips that you know of people going on, so they go to some other country on a missions trip, short-term missions trip, a week or two, something like that. And what kinds of things have those people done on those missions trips? Um, I know of all kinds of projects people have gone to do on these short-term mission trips, things like digging wells for water in a particular city. Now, is that a good humanitarian thing to do? It is. You know, the people in this city need, need water. They need clean drinking water, and so you go there to try to help them get clean drinking water. But... And, and if somebody wants to go do that for a couple of weeks, it's fine by me. It's a great humanitarian thing to do. But it's not the Great Commission. It's not missions, actually. You're not engaged in the mission unless you are also involving the church. The mission is, remember, reproducing what? Churches, not water. Churches. So, you know, I have no problem with people going and digging wells and all of that, but don't call it missions. That's not what missions, biblical missions is. So if you look at our roster, our church's roster of missionaries that we support, and if you pick up our prayer list every week, it's, you get it at our community groups, but it's also on our uh, welcome center every week. And in the upper left-hand corner, we've got our list of all of our missionaries. And all of those are engaged in planting churches, or they're engaged in training pastors to plant churches. You know, we, we, we support Kevin and, Sharon, uh, and Sarah Sherman, who were here just a few weeks ago. They're in Zambia. And Kevin and Sarah are involved at the Central Africa Baptist University in Zambia. They teach pastors to plant churches. <laughs> so they're not planting churches, I grant, but they're teaching people to do that. So everybody we support is either planting churches or they're teaching people to plant churches. We're supporting that in some way. They're not simply, as good as these things may be, they're not simply humanitarian efforts. So there should never be a mission-less church or a church-less mission. Number two, corporate mission cannot be separated from the other objectives of the Great Commission. Remember what those three objectives are. As I said at the beginning of today, evangelism, edification, and expansion. The evangelistic endeavor of reproducing congregations is not the priority of the church, it's a priority. The objectives of the Great Commission work in concert with one another and they can't be separated. Those who are evangelized have to be edified. And the result of both of those happening, evangelism and edification, 
is the third thing, expansion. So all we're warning against here is this. Look, you can look at those three objectives and you can say we've got evangelism, edification, expansion. And what a lot of churches will do is they will focus on one or the other or maybe two, but you don't focus on one or two. You have to focus on all three. They all three go together. That's what we're saying here. And in fact, they're linked together. One leads to the other. Evangelism then brings people into the church who need to be edified. And then as those people are built up in the faith, now you've got people who can now go out and create new congregations, expand the work of the Lord. So corporate mission is a priority for the congregation. And lastly, corporate mission is a priority for each of us individually. So for the whole congregation, the church, but also for you and me individually. Because the Great Commission was given to local churches and the New Testament expects all believers to minister through local churches, then the corporate mission of the church is to be a priority in the life of every believer. When individuals become Christians, they are not to be individualistic. They are to be part of a community of believers who together our goal is to reproduce congregations. All right, so here's what that's saying. It's saying, yes, we together congregationally, corporately, are to carry out these objectives, including this one of corporate mission, seeing churches reproduced, seeing the mission move forward. We're to do that together. But you'll never do that together if you don't have each member individually prioritizing that in their life. And so it's got to be a priority for you and you and you and you and me and all of you watching it's got to be a priority for all of us so that now we can do this together. So just stop for a moment and think about ways that you can allow other things to get in the way of you and your family individually prioritizing the mission of the church. Think about what kinds of things can get in the way of that. Hey, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of the things that our church deals with all the time, and I just shake my head. I just shake my head and I go, here goes another one. Uh, it's people making the mistake that my parents absolutely refused to make when they were raising me. When I was a kid, you guys have heard me say, uh, my favorite sport, though I was thankful to be able to play Little League, you know, baseball and, and high school play basketball and all that, but all that time, my favorite thing was always playing ice hockey. And it's still my favorite sport, ice hockey. But when I was a kid playing ice hockey, um, they had two, in my city, they had two different teams. They had what they called the house league and the travel team. You guys have ever, okay. So the house league, everybody got on the house league, you know, certain age group. So if you were, you know, if, if it was this eight and nine-year-olds, I think that was around squirt, they called it. So you got mites, squirts, peewee, bantam, midget. That's what they, <laughs> I mean, you got up there and you were still called midget. But anyway, <laughs> but there were these different age groups. And so if you were in the, you know, like eight and nine and you were in the squirt, there was the squirt house league, which meant every eight and nine-year-old in the city who wanted to come out automatically made the team. But then there was the travel team. And, you know, I always wanted to play on the travel team. And you had to go out and you had to make the travel team. And I was able to actually, believe it or not, make the travel team. And that was the good news. Here's the bad news. The travel team had a game every single Sunday morning. Now, they had games on like Tuesday evening and Thursday evening, 
But they also had a game every single Sunday morning. And my parents made it clear to me, we want you to play hockey, we want you to have fun. You will not be playing hockey on Sunday morning, period. So what that meant was, uh, you know, in hockey, they've got usually three or four lines. They call it the first line, second line, third line, fourth line. The first line is the best line, second. So instead of being on one of the better lines, I was always going to be on the fourth line, <laughs> on the fourth line, because I'm missing a game every single week. And that was really hard, a hard lesson. But my parents were teaching me something about us as individual believers and as a family prioritizing the mission over lesser things. And that thing has stuck with me. And I see parents do this regularly. And they get their kids involved in things that are going to pull them away from the mission of the church. And it's a huge mistake. And we, are, we try to drill it to our parents. And a lot of them get the message, thankfully. But there's always some who, some who don't. So as a result of me being the church guy on Sundays, there was always the ridicule that went with that too. <laughs> so I had one coach. We played one game you know, on a Tuesday or Thursday. And I had made some bonehead play. And we're in the locker room, and we lost. And we're sitting in the locker room, and I've got my head down. We're all feeling bad because we lost. And the coach you know, barges in the door, and he's mad because of the way we played. And he's yelling at the goalie because the goalie let some goals in. And he's yelling. This was the days where they yelled and got in kids' face, and nobody got sued. And they would get in your face sometimes and smack you on the side of the head. Are you listening to me? Listen to me. You know, I mean, they were scary sometimes. And so the guy's yelling and all that. And all of a sudden, he remembers the bonehead play that I made. And he goes, where's Brown? At church? That's what he says. So I still remember that to this day. I turned 62 weeks ago. I still remember. I'm like 10 years old, and this guy's saying, where's Brown? At church? So there was that. You know, you're going to play on the third or the fourth line because you're always going to church. And then one final story of the woes for me and my family teaching me this lesson, though. I never played a game on a Sunday. Never. And we had a game one weekend where we had a game on a Saturday and on a Sunday. Both. And a cousin of mine was getting married in Ohio. And my mom says, my dad had passed away. So my mom says, we got to go to this wedding in Ohio, which means you got to miss your game on Saturday. I don't even know this cousin that well. <laughs> and I got to miss my game on Saturday and my game on Sunday? And my mom says to me, no, we'll go to the wedding and you can play your game tomorrow. She's going to let me play on Sunday this one time. And I thought, oh, okay. I, I always miss a game on the weekend. May as well miss it on Saturday. So we go to the, the wedding in Ohio. I miss the game. But I'm excited about the fact that I'm for the first time ever going to be able to play the game on Sunday. I uh, go to the game on that Sunday. And guess what? I don't get to play at all. Because we failed to call and let the coach know that I wouldn't be coming on Saturday. And we didn't because we had never done that before. It was so new to us. So I was hating on that coach for doing that. To this day, I, it's scarred me for life. But, but the point is, there are hard things you that you have to do. And those hard things with my parents prioritizing the Lord's work in church stuck with me, and they, have made, they made me faithful to church all my life. And we did the same thing with our girls, and I'm encouraging you to do the same thing with your kids, and we're fighting the fight to have our parents do the same thing here 
for what you see on page 206. So the box there at the bottom of page 206, there should never be a mission-less church or a church-less mission. All right. Thank you, guys. I remind you that there's the homework every week in preparation for the next week, so you can do the homework for Lesson 22, which we will cover next Wednesday. Anyone know what time it is?